We apologise to the listener, but the last 10 minutes of Lance's talk on side two is missing. It was not recorded on the original tape. We come this evening to Genesis chapter 3. And you will, I think, already, already realize that even with all that is revealed in Genesis 1 and 2, we have not got the practical explanation for what we have today. If we had only the first two chapters of Genesis, we <clears throat> would have discovered, first of all, that the whole creation is the result of the sovereign activity of God. And we would also have found out that man is the result of a sovereign creation of God. He created us quite sovereignly, directly, personally. There was something quite, quite direct about man's creation. We would also have discovered that man, in uh, the thought of God, is the apex of creation. That is, he is the top stone of creation. He is the consummation of it all. In a sense, man is the sum of creation. He, as it were, crowns the work of God. And we would have discovered that everything about the creation and about man was very good. God's uh, uh, thought about the whole thing was it was very good. We would also have discovered that man was the center and the beginning from Genesis 2 of God's work. That is, everything was created uh, insofar as it was related to God's thought concerning man. There was absolutely nothing created that was not in some way or another related to God's purpose concerning man. Man was the beginning of it all, and man was the heart of it all. We would also have discovered that God didn't want a kind of machine we would have discovered that man is a vessel created by God and the only vessel created by God which is capable of holding God. That was God's thought in man. That man was a vessel who had, was given, was so constituted that he had a capacity for God. God could actually live in man in a way that he couldn't live in anything else. Man could respond to God. Man could walk with God. Man could delight God. Man could satisfy God. We would have found out all those things from Genesis 1 and 2. We would have found out that God didn't want a press-button machine. We would have found out from Genesis 2 that God wanted um, a man that would enter quite voluntarily into all that God wanted. For him, intended for him. He wanted to know that man was there, not out of duty, not out of fear, but out of love. Man wanted to be at the side of God. We were also discovered 
that God, that God had a glorious destiny for man. Nothing less than marriage was God's thought for man. Something that Paul calls a mystery. Something which is utterly beyond even our wildest dreams. All that we can say, the only way we can explain it is by this term marriage. God's thought, God's destiny for man was that by coming, uh, by, by, by partaking of the tree of life, man should come to his destiny, which was an indissoluble, indivisible union with himself in his son. That was God's thought. We would have learned all that. And we would have been very, very, very bewildered. We would have said, well, if that is everything, if that's uh, what God created, if that's how God created, well then, why? Why all this? Why the awful and bloody history of man? Why the breakdown? Why the failure? Why the misery? Where's the evil come from? Why are things in disharmony? Why is there so much strife? What about the cesspool that this world is? We would have asked these questions. We've been, we, wouldn't have had, we would have had no answer. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, are very, very wonderful. And they're very, very necessary. Genesis 2 is absolutely vital to an understanding even of the gospel. The whole Bible springs out of Genesis 2. But Genesis 3 is the practical side of it all. <clears throat> the explanation. We need to have an explanation. It's very necessary that we should have an explanation. Why have we got bodies like we have? Why have we got appetites like we have? Why do we react like we react? Why is there an inherent rebellion in us against God, even when we're children of God? Why is there that there that we are so made? What, what is the why is the current against? and all the rest of it. Well, <clears throat> Genesis 3 is the explanation and a very practical explanation of the present. And furthermore, Genesis 3 is the practical answer. You know, <clears throat> that is perhaps the most wonderful thing of all, that Genesis 3 has within it the whole seed of the answer. God's answer is there in the third chapter of Genesis. If we had nothing else, we've got the answer there written in the third chapter of Genesis. And there is a sense <coughs> in which out of two small phrases in Genesis 3, the whole Bible springs the seed of the woman and God clothed them with skin. Out of that everything comes. Um, the whole Bible, really, in many ways, is but the evidence of, of that seed and of the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and also of those that have, have come by this way of the death of another have found their standing and acceptance before and with God. So we come this evening to Genesis chapter 3. <coughs> And we find, before 
we have even read the first few words of Genesis 3, we find a new element immediately. We have an element introduced in the first few verses that is not found anywhere else in the first three chapters, or at least the first two chapters. And we read this, Now the serpent. Now the serpent. We've got, as it were, the, uh, a new element. The devil has been introduced right at the very um, beginning of chapter 3, we have the devil himself introduced. So we get down to things very, very quickly. Here we are, we're dealing with the present. Why has it all happened? What, what has happened? Where did it all originate? Why is it like this? Why are we like this? And in the first few verse, words of the first verse, we've got the answer. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent. The serpent. Now you would like to look up, no doubt, some scriptures. We have here a very interesting thing. There has always been a great argument. Was it an actual serpent? Was it uh, the serpent, as we know serpent today, that the devil mastered and controlled and so used as to, uh, as to bring about the fall? Or, as some believe, was it simply a term that we know is used throughout Scripture for the devil himself? Did he come as a minister of light, uh, an angel of light and a minister of righteousness into the garden? Well, that we're not going to stay with this evening. I might just say that Genesis 3 is in many ways a carrying on of Genesis 2. And if you remember all that we said about oriental imagery, Concerning Genesis 2, you'll understand a good deal more about Genesis 3. You've got one or two things in Genesis 3, of course, which are quite obviously symbolical. And you've got the cherubim in front of the thing, and a flame of a sword that cuts every way, um, and the tree of life there. Um, we believe that to be something that stands, uh, something spiritual, and it's the whole word of God. Now, would you like to look um, at some of these scriptures. First of all, would you like to read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 and verse 14. Someone could read that. You would help if you would just read it. Someone read that, please. By the way, the word old literally does mean old. It means ancient. Not as I'm afraid we use it to that old serpent. Subconsciously, I always used to think that's what it meant, that old serpent. But it means that ancient uh, serpent, uh, the devil. We might just remember that. It goes back to the beginning. And then Revelation 20, verse 2. Now, you see from those only very few scriptures that the devil is quite consistently called throughout the Bible the serpent, that old serpent, the devil. We have no mention of the devil. We have no mention in the first two chapters of the devil or of an angelic fall. All we have are one or two possible hints. For instance, we're told that the world was chaos and void. Some people believe that's uh, an evidence of some terrible uh, angelic catastrophe. And then again we're told that um, Adam was put into the Garden of Eden to till it and to guard it. 
He was to take heed. He was to watch over it. And those are the only hints that we have that there was any uh, person, uh, really other than God and uh, Adam and Eve. We have no suggestion in these first two chapters of the, very, the, the existence of the devil himself until we come to chapter 3. And then suddenly the Lord draws aside the curtain and we see suddenly that behind the whole of creation there lies something far vaster, far bigger. Uh, there is some being that, to put it as we would today, has fallen out with God and has led a faction, a division. And it has ended in a complete uh, break with God. And we find that uh, this being has been cast entirely out. If you want to look again <coughs> at two uh, passages in the Word, the very revealing, find one in Isaiah chapter 14, <coughs> One in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. I'll read and realize that Isaiah was primarily prophesying about Babylon. He began off by speaking about Babylon. <coughs> and then suddenly, Isaiah is carried obviously far beyond men and kings and says things that really could not be true about a human being. Day star, oh day star, Lucifer, son of the morning, and so on. You turn over to Ezekiel 28 and you have an even more uh, remarkable Prophecy. Ezekiel 28. Well, son of Ezekiel was speaking at the beginning about the king of Tyre. And in his prophecy is carried right beyond the king of Tyre to something that lies behind the king of Tyre. You know, the scripture speaks of world rulers of darkness. That which lies behind the king, behind the dictator, behind the government of the nations. And therein we learn a very, very amazing thing. We learn simply this, that kind always begets its own kind. Satan can only produce himself. When we realize that, we've got to the heart of the fall. Satan has produced something. And when the prophet takes up his lamentation over Babylon, or when he takes up his lamentation over Tyre, he's perfectly right when he gets beyond what is human and sees behind the human the satanic. He sees in the king of Tyre, for instance, only the reproduction in miniature of what has happened to Satan himself. He saw the same spirit, saw the same characteristics, saw the same hallmark. It was all there, you see. When we come then to this <coughs> third chapter 
of Genesis, we find straight away that we're in the presence of Satan. There is a malignant adversary. And we find, this has to be said, that Satan has the most violent antagonism and hatred toward Christ and toward man. I do not believe that Satan has not got a hatred toward man. I believe that Satan hates man. He hates man. He only uses man to an end of something vile in the hatred of Satan for man. You're therefore, and you've got to recognize this, you're in the presence of a hatred which is ferocious in its power. A hatred and an antagonism toward Christ and then toward man. Find it throughout the whole of Scripture. Why does Satan uh, come into the garden? What is he trying to do? Why does he take man and why does he utterly pervert man and then degrade man and then bring man down to a bondage to depravity? which only after thousands and thousands and thousands of years we've got evidence today in a much greater and more universal way than even at the beginning of the depravity and the bondage to depravity that there is in man. Or Satan's whole idea behind it. You've got it simply in this hatred of Christ. Satan is out he knows he can't destroy God's Son, but he is out to destroy God's dwelling place. He knows better than we that from the beginning God's thought in man was a vessel, a place to dwell, as it were a place capable of being possessed and indwelt by God, a bride for God's Son. And Satan is out to Utterly, dis utterly, utterly eliminate any possibility of that ever taking place. Find then, when Satan said, I will be like the Most High, I will exalt my throne, uh, and so on, and he comes down, his first attempt is to take away God's man. What is God's purpose concerning his son? What is God's purpose concerning man? Satan says, I will take the place of God's Christ. I will take man for myself. I will bring man into a union with myself. I will wed man to myself. We find within the third chapter of Genesis just that happening. Another thing I want you to note about the third chapter of Genesis is the name which is used consistently throughout it for the Lord. You know, as in Genesis 2, that throughout Genesis 3, it is Jehovah God, the Lord God, that is used with a significant uh, exception. Satan refuses 
call him the Lord God. The only term that Satan uses for uh, the Lord is God. He refuses to name Jehovah. And you also note another significant exception that the woman also does not name him as Jehovah. <clears throat> Although you will note that in Genesis 4 and the first few verses she says, I have gotten a man with the help of Jehovah. Well, the name was known to be but uh, when she is speaking with the devil, she doesn't use the name of Jehovah. She also refers to him as God. I think there you've got the key to the conflict. You've got the key to the conflict. The Lord is revealing himself as Jehovah, God of love, a God who is bound in an intimate, personal, and direct way in covenant relations with his people. And uh, it's that that Satan now can destroy. Satan knows only too well that a people in a covenant relationship with God cannot be destroyed. If you stay on the ground of God's covenant, you can't be destroyed. Get off the ground of God's covenant and you'll be destroyed instantaneously. All be submerged and taken away. Satan knew very well the, the thing he'd got to strike was the whole relationship of God to man and man to God. He'd got to destroy the covenant relationship with God, uh, uh, with man. God's covenant relationship with man. That's the obvious lesson that we learn from the fact that throughout this chapter, in the midst of failure, in the midst of sorrow, and in the midst of complete breakdown, we find that the Lord comes in as Jehovah, Jehovah God, known throughout. It would be a terrible thing if he'd been known as Jehovah God in Genesis 2, and as just God in Genesis 3. But the most wonderful thing of all is that the Lord reveals himself in Genesis 3 as Jehovah God, right the way through from beginning to end. And the exception is the devil himself. Now, let's take a closer look at this chapter. Do trust you don't find this too heavy this evening. I don't know how far we shall get. Let's take a closer um, look at this chapter. And the first thing I want you to look at more closely is the fall itself. Let's see what we can learn from the fall. I don't believe the devil's method changes. It's the most remarkable thing. Although the devil's been at work for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, his methods don't change. You're going to find, if you're anything like me, that the way the devil came to Eve and the way he worked is very much the same as he comes to you and to me. First of all, I want you to note this. Mark the devil's craftiness. Now, if we were planning a strategy, I'm quite sure we would have done something quite different. But mark the, the devil's strategy. He takes a serpent, which is a subject creature to man, under God's ordering, and through the serpent, he comes to woman. Through woman, he gets at man. 
And through man, he gets at the Lord. I wonder what would have happened if you'd started with man. <laughs> we wonder what would have happened if you'd started with the Lord. Uh, it wouldn't, not if he'd started with the Lord. Anyway, the devil evidently had his stratagem, and he began with the serpent. And he mastered the serpent first. Evidently, he got control in some way or other of the serpent. And through this, perhaps the woman never thought, she didn't think for a moment, because it says quite clearly in the Word of God that Eve was deceived. But it says also clearly in the Word of God that Adam was not deceived. He took deliberately, whereas Eve was deceived when she took. The serpent came then to Eve, and by that method the enemy deceived, beguiled Eve, so that she did take. And then by the woman, the man came and also took. And the enemy had got, uh, had won the day, as it were. That's very interesting. Because I have found in my own experience, I'm sure you've found in yours, that we hardly ever fall from frontal attacks. When the enemy comes in with a terrific onslaught, we know that it's the enemy. We flee for refuge. But is it not often when the enemy comes to innocent things? Well, as far as the woman was concerned, the serpent was a perfectly innocent creature. She was evidently quite used to it uh, um, in the garden. And uh, You know, we've talked about the fact that she was not surprised about its speech. But we can't go into that this evening. But evidently, whatever it was, um, this was quite innocent. She never thought for a moment that anything satanic was coming out of this. It was something that was perfectly normal in her life, and uh, something furthermore which was part of the whole relationship of man to the animal creation. Man had a dominion. Man had been placed in relationship to those creatures. He was, as it were, to watch over them, to tend them and so on, supposed to dress them, keep the garden and everything within it, as it were. And uh, it must have been very, very interesting that somehow out of that way it came. And then the enemy got at Adam through his wife. Perhaps if the enemy had come himself, I don't know, Adam may be more on his guard, but coming as he did to his wife, he was uh, caught off guard. We can say a lot of things than that simple craftiness of the devil. Note how simply some of the things that the serpent says. You see it in verse 1. The first thing we read is this. Yea, hath God said ye shall not eat of any tree? of the garden. And the first thing we find is simply that um, there are three things we find about how the enemy opens his conversation. First of all, he plants the seed of the doubt. He says, in a very winning way, did God say that? Did you hear right? you absolutely sure that the Lord said you're not to eat anything uh, in the garden? Now mark carefully what he said. He was very, very clever. He planted a seed by telling a lie. He said, Yea, hath God said ye shall not eat of every tree or any tree or all the trees 
of the garden? The Lord had never said that. The devil knew that too. He was using two other ways. First of all, it was false innocency. And that's always a method of the enemy. He comes at you, he talks to you sometimes through your own thoughts. He says, that can't turn, can't be so. He always just gives a twist to things, which, of course, the Lord never said. The Lord never said, you shall not eat of every tree of all the trees in the garden. What the Lord said uh, was quite silly. He said, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not. So the first thing um, uh, Satan does is he plants a doubt. And the doubt was as to whether the Lord was really, could it really, could a God of love and a God of goodness and a God of grace and a God of mercy uh, uh, sort of suggest anything like this? Yes, has God said? And he did it not by sort of saying, Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of any. I think uh, possibly he would have been a little more on her guard. But you see, the way he did it was by assuming ignorance. He said, instruct me, I don't know about this. I'm very, very uh, ignorant on these things. I'm quite innocent. I need a little bit of your help. Could you please tell me? Uh, Lord, I understand the Lord said to you. He surely didn't say you shouldn't eat about it. Because he walks into the trap. He wins her confidence by stirring up pride. She began to tell him straight away. Oh, no, she says, you've got it wrong. The Lord never said, he said, we could eat of the trees of the garden. But he said, we should not eat of that tree. But he'd won her confidence. Not a guard. That's always the way the enemy comes to us, always. Pride or vanity is always the ground for failure. The slightest vestige of vanity left in us, it will become in the end our downfall. It's one thing why the Lord has to take such pain to smash up pride in us. Bring us alone. Some of you wonder, why does the Lord show me how vile I am? Why does he continually show me how sinful and all the rest of it? Because he's got to smash this thing that we call pride. Leave a pocket of it. And it's ground for the enemy. It's along that line he'll always come. On the line of just somehow getting your confidence, you see. You're quite innocent. Well, that's the first thing I want you to note about the, de the devil. Three things. You see, he talks of all the trees. When he knew very well it was one tree. He assumes an ignorance, an innocency about the whole thing. And then he wins a confidence by putting himself in the place of being, as it were, instructed. Uh, he says, now tell me, never talk with the devil. The scripture never told us anywhere to talk with the devil. It says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If you parley with the devil, you're lost. And here you've got it, you see. If only Eve had said straight away, no, 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 I'm not talking about that. 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 But no, she had, she'd started to talk, and in a sense, the devil knew what the end was going to be then. He'd won her confidence. 
The second thing I want you to notice is the way the devil mixes truth with lies. There's such a lot here of truth. You see, all the time the devil's mixing in truth with a lie. He says, of the fruit of the tree, uh, he says, yea, if God said you shall not eat of any tree of the garden, well, that's a lie. And yet you know it's truth. He's mixed in truth with a lie. A little farther on he says, uh, you shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. There's truth, and there is lie there. It's a mixture. The enemy is very, very clever. He never comes uh, along the line of complete falsehood. He comes along the line of a mixture. He's like an angel of light, like a minister of righteousness. That's the way he comes along, always, every time. Then I want you to notice another thing. Having got that far with Eve, he now feels he can take a further step. And he, we come to this verse, in verse 4 and verse 5, ye shall not surely die. That's not a question. He doesn't say, ye shall not surely die. Absolutely. He says, ye shall not surely. You will not. Quite certain. You will not die. And we find uh, a, a further um, few things. First of all, we find Satan blatantly contradicts God. Blatantly contradicts God. And whenever anything blatantly contradicts God, we know where it comes from. Amazing how often in our experience something blatantly contradicts God. Here it is in the Word of God, but something will say, no, that's not so. That is not so. That is not the truth. It's amazing how we find again and again just that. Another thing, of course, is the devil told a lie. And the Lord Jesus said he is the father of lies. He is a liar from the beginning. He told a lie that he shall not surely die. And the other, and I think the most remarkable thing, is that he makes a charge, and I can't find a word really to describe it, of meanness against the Lord. I was going to put avarice, but you know, I think that is all, almost the charge that Satan made. What he was saying to Eve was simply this, look here Eve, you won't die. It's was stupid. You won't die. He only told you that. And the reason he told you he threatened you with death is simply that he's frightened that you'll you'll get elevated. He knows very well that if you do the thing he says you uh, must not do, you'll be, you'll be immediately elevated. You'll come into a position which is uh, on an equality with God. You'll be there, as it were, as God. You won't need him. <clears throat> you won't need him. You'll be independent of God and you'll be able to live a life of independence. Yeah. It's amazing, really, when you think of the way that the enemy always comes al along. I, I know this must answer something in many of your lives, because many of you have spoken along this very line. 
one of the greatest things the Lord has to do with us is to get rid of this perverted idea of God that is somehow born in, in, inside of us. We've got the idea, and it's one of our greatest difficulties when it comes to the Lordship of Christ, that God is avaricious. That he'll take everything and give nothing. That he'll grind us into the dust. Make us little servile slaves that have absolutely nothing. Lives miserable, joyless, empty, vacuous. You know that kind of feeling we all get. Oh, if I do that, if, if I go along that way, you know what the Lord will do to me? He'll take everything, he'll give nothing. He's so mean, he's not out for my best, really. He wants to take away my career from me. He wants to smash up my home for me. He wants to take away my own desires. He wants to sort of stop me getting any place, getting at all satisfied. He's just out. He wants everything for himself. He doesn't want me to have anything. That's just the charge that Satan made with Eve. He said, Eve, if you only knew what he was like. He's avaricious. He's mean. He only threatened you because uh, he's uh, so afraid that if you take that line, uh, he'll lose a lot. You won't need him anymore. You'll be independent. You can see that's that's truth and it's a lie. There's a sense in which it's true. Let man take that course, and he will be independent of God. At the same time, little did Eve realize just all that was bound up with taking that course. She may be independent of God, but what else came in by that independence of God? What about all the sorrow and the misery and death and corruption and degradation and all the rest that she opened the floodgates to? Uh, at that time. Well, there you have something very, very remarkable. Because it's so true that Satan still at work along these very lines. These are the lines upon which he comes again and again to us, speaks to us along these lines, and gets at us along these lines. You'll note that he never uses the name of Jehovah. No wonder. Couldn't talk of Jehovah and then and then charge the Lord with meanness and avarice. Jehovah must be uh, kept as far out of, of the vicinity of the woman as possible. He could only speak of him as God, great God, distant God, mighty and grand, all powerful. That's all he could speak of. Uh, as he did not bring in once that relationship of Jehovah. And then look at the, the woman. And you'll see in verse 2 immediately her undoing. She leaves the ground of covenant and she calls him just God. That's the beginning of it all. When Satan started talking with her, the poison had worked already. She forgot uh, the Lord in his love and in his grace and in his relationship to man. She was not seeing that. And then you'll notice another thing about the woman is the absence of fellowship. 
She had no fellowship about the matter. She acted very, very hastily indeed. The devil spoke to her and he said, Come on, couldn't I mean, surely, he says, the Lord didn't, didn't, uh, good God, God of grace and love wouldn't uh, require this kind of thing, wouldn't put this kind of restriction on you, would he? Because uh, later on he comes right out into the open and says, Of course he wouldn't. It's a lie. He knows very well that if you take that, finished. It's finished with you. You will come into a new, released, liberated, emancipated sphere where you'll be just rather like him. And uh, you see, she didn't talk about it. She just looked at her. He's doing that to them, being lay on the mind, which is then through deception and all that sort of thing. Yes. People try and get their emancipation in there. Yes. The devil's always using methods, and his and his lie is not really changed all that much. His lie is more or less the same, has been the same from the beginning. He always promises the same things. Even today, he's promising to make men gods. Um, you note anyway the absence of fellowship there, and you notice the absence of order too, don't you? Um, it's very, very interesting the way um, Eve fell uh, in this way. She did something which she shouldn't really have done. She took a very big step, didn't she? Uh, very rather hastily, the spur of the moment. And, uh, <clears throat> well, we do rather feel that her husband should have been leading uh, in the matter, but he wasn't. Uh, Eve was in the lead in the matter. <clears throat> And then you'll notice another thing which is rather remarkable. Um, if you compare what Eve said the Lord said and what the Lord actually said. Now, this is what the Lord actually said. Of every tree of the garden thou must freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, this is Eve's version. It's rather interesting. She said, of the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You see three very interesting things there. First of all, she evidently, and this is always the way the devil works with us, he toned down God's richness. Instead of having this in her mind, of every tree in the garden, thou mayest freely eat. In Eve's mind, it's got toned down to this. Of the trees of the garden we may eat. But of the tree in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. Well, that may have been very good, maybe very true. If she was told not to eat it, it's best not to touch it either. 